Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Episode 280, The Turn of the Screw, Henry James and the History of Parapsychology. Wendy, Allison, how are you guys doing on this fine Sunday afternoon? Oh, great. I'm glad to be here. Just wonderful. We survived the snowmageddon that was supposed to come and ended up being like almost nothing. Yeah, it was just a nice little blanket of snow that came over. (laughs) And basically, no problem at all. Didn't even, I haven't even shoveled yet. That's... (laughs) Of course, I'm lazy. But it kind of gave everybody an excuse to, like, stockpile food and then just hole up for the weekend (laughs) at home. So that was kind of funny. And and that actually actually happened. Um, So, Scott, like, I I didn't realize people would have the level of panic that there seemed to be because um, (laughs) I just thought, oh, we need a couple things. I'm on a salad dressing. And Scott's like, I'll go to Woodman's. And and he's like, oh, no. I was in line for 40 minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, Wow. I had to rob a Piggly Wiggly and, <laughs> to get everything I needed. Woodman's is bad on a normal day, but on a, in this kind of situation. I was going to yeah. say 40 minutes. Either way, uh, that's the real life <laughs> horror we had to face this weekend. Yes. As far as the fictional horror coming out on uh, January 24th, 2020, is the latest adaptation of Henry James' 1898 horror novella, The Turn of the Screw. And this new version's called The Turning, and it's a modernization of it. So I believe it's set in the 1990s. So instead of being set in the 1890s, it's set in the 1990s. And it's starring Finn Wolfhard, the actor with the sweetest name in all of television. (laughs) You guys know him as Mike from Stranger Things. Yes. The guy who makes all the kissy faces with L in the last scene. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and he's, I mean, he also was in It, uh, and he's going to be in Ghostbusters Afterlife coming out this summer. So basically, Finn Wolfhard is the coolest actor in Hollywood right now, and he can't even, uh, prob- I mean, I don't even think he can drive. Can he drive yet? Well, when would he have time to take driver's ed with all <laughs> those know, acting gigs? Like- True. He's like got the it factor going. He can take drivers for sure. <laughs> Once That's the true. phone stops ringing, right? I'm trying to I'm trying to find his uh, birthday here and see exactly when he was born. Finn Wolfhard. Um, he plays, <laughs> find out what? he's like thirty. <laughs> oh no, my god! No, December twenty third, two thousand and two. Oh wow! Yeah, he is a baby. Yeah, so December 23rd, 2002. It's not like Michael J. Fox, who was like 30 when he starred in Back to the Future. <laughs> or all of the Beverly Hills 90210 cast. Right. They're like in high school, but they're actually like middle-aged. Jason Priestley was actually getting um, the uh, AARP magazine when he was in Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> but the thing is, he played. There's there are two kids in The Turn of the Screw. So just if you guys haven't read the book since high school or college, or if you've never read the book, we'll just give you a quick summary right now. You have an old English manor and two kids whose parents have died who are being raised by their uncle, but their uncle doesn't want any part of their lives. So he hires people to take care of them so he doesn't have to worry about it. The new governess shows up on the scene in order to raise the kids. And she starts seeing the ghosts of the old governess and the old governess's lover and thinks that they are trying to turn the children evil and against her. And um, the turn of the screw, the actual meaning of the phrase, and I guess I never realized that what the actual phrase meant, but is that every action leads to something worse. So every turn of the screw, like I, always thought, I thought it meant like the tightening because it's a horror novel. I meant like, oh, the world's tightening around the governess kind of thing. But uh, the actual meaning of the phrase, the turn of the screw, is every time the screw turns, every action just leads to a worse and worse outcome. Yeah, and it's also, um, it's actually used in the book a couple times. 
as just, you know, to emphasize or exaggerate to say like, so I'll, I'll read you the quote of its first instance in the book, because the book actually, it sets up the story before it goes into the actual story. It sets up the story of a family at Christmas time telling ghost stories, right? Mm-hmm. And um, somebody tells a story that involves a child and everybody's very disturbed that, you know, this ghost story has a child in it. And then someone else steps in and says, if the child gives the effect another turn of the screw, what do you say to two children? And then proceeds to tell the story that, in, you know, the actual story that involves two children. So they're saying like, okay, if, if having one kid in the ghost story is bad, you know, <laughs> they're kind of then let's turn the screw top, more. Yeah, they're trying to top each other. Exactly. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of an interesting. Which, uh, which reminds me of, you know, the whole tradition of telling stories or, or making up the more extreme stories like um, as you know with uh, with the ghost story session that led to the creation of Frankenstein for example ah, you know, they, that's right they, they were trying to um, you know this dismal summer um, you know came and they couldn't do anything except sit by the fire so they just kept trying to top each other and tell the, you know the more horrible ghost story. But what was happening, though, what was happening, though, what you're talking about, Allison, uh, on Lake Geneva oh, no. in Switzerland, um, <laughs> in, in, in that state, with, with Percy Shelley, with Mary Shelley, and with Lord Byron, I think the turn of the screw had a completely different definition. <laughs> no. For that group of people. Well, that's true. There's a lot of screwing going on, whichever <laughs> yes. way you want to look at it. Absolutely. So there's a couple of ways. I, I love that. First of all, it's just a great title for something. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, because it just, it has a, uh, there's some kind of darkness to it. And the fact mm. that it just means like everything just spirals in. The tighter it gets, uh, you know, the worse it gets. Um, it's, it's a great thing. And Henry James, obviously, uh, famous novelist and came from a super famous family. This is something that I think is really interesting, that... Henry James uh, was a famous novelist. His father, Henry James Sr., was like a fairly, like a rich guy in the mid-1800s, 19th century. Um, He amasses a fortune through some kind of business dealings in upstate New York, mostly real estate, uh, money lending, and he helped build the Erie Canal. Wow, Wow. what a guy. Uh, Yeah, even the dad was into eerie stuff. Oh, man. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, um, age of 13. (laughs) But that's true. He was into eerie stuff, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's not leave his father yet, because his father was pretty straight-laced and didn't believe in ghosts. But then something happened, didn't it, Mike? Right. Well, his father, I mean, he became a rich man, though, after um, his leg was amputated as a boy. Age age of 13, his leg is amputated. He's he's trying to stamp out a fire in a barn, and then his leg gets burnt, and the only way to save it is to chop it off. So he gets his leg chopped off when he's 13 years old. Then he's bedridden for three years. And so then he has to become a... um, he becomes a very studious person. He becomes a scholar, becomes somewhat spiritual. He studies at the Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1830s. But then he starts to have a crisis of faith, and he abandons the idea of becoming a minister, goes off to England for a year to think. As you do. Probably not to ride in the countryside. Probably not a ride and go along with his wooden leg or whatever. But he comes back. In, now, this is an interesting thing. So in May of 1844, he's hanging around in Windsor, England. He's like on a vacation. He has an evening dinner. And then he's sitting after dinner, gazing at a fire. And he has in that moment what he calls the defining spiritual experience of his life. He calls it a vastation um, where he has to spiritually regenerate. So in his words, Here's what he he finds. He starts feeling this fear and terror and, quote, 
a perfectly insane and abject terror without ostensible cause and only to be accounted for to my perplexed imagination by some damned shape squatting invisible to me within the precincts of the room and ring out from his fetid personality influences fatal to life. This lasts for two years. So he like goes a little bit off his rocker for two years, and then he starts really getting to this guy named Emanuel Swedenborg. Yes, a very famous mystic, actually. So Swedenborg is a Swedish Lutheran theologian um, who also was a really great cook. And his actual... Uh, <laughs> he was the Swedish chef? Right. So it was the inspiration act- for the Swedish chef? Is that what you're he, telling us, Mike? He writes this book called Bork, Bork, Bork. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote a Bork. And, uh, actually, he wrote a book called Heaven and Hell. And the thing is, so Swedenborg lived from 1688 to 1772, and he believes that he received a new, revela- new revelation from Jesus, and he experienced these revelations over 25 years. He writes it up saying that a new church is going to be established that kind of gives up on the Old Testament and just concentrates on Jesus, and that everybody has to cooperate in repentance, reformation, and regeneration, and that the second coming is on the way. So Swedenborg is, he's almost like uh, Joseph Smith and the Mormons, because Joseph Smith had his uh, specific revelations that happened in the early 1800s. Swedenborg was maybe about 50 years beforehand. And then, I mean, Swedenborg, he was put on trial in Sweden for being a heretic. Wow. And so they kind of like, he didn't really become famous until after he had died. So it's the same kind of thing, like people kind of, like, kind of like Jesus or whatever. He, people kind of took up his uh, mantle of his, you know, his religious ideas after he had died. And then churches start springing up, particularly in England. And so that's where uh, Henry James Sr., uh, he was exposed to this kind of stuff. And Henry James Sr., he's got five kids, and three of the kids end up being fairly famous. One of them, of course, is Henry James Jr., who writes The Turning of the Screw. One of them is Alice James, who, after her death, her diaries make her famous. So she writes these diaries that people think are brilliant, and she's very witty and clever, and she becomes a famous writer after she passes away. And then finally, we have William James, who's basically the father of American psychology. And a lot of people would argue of parapsychology itself. Right. So, I mean, William James, he's doing actual, like, psych- like parapsychological research at the turn of the 19th century. He's part of the British Society for Psychical Research. He comes back to the U.S. and starts the American Society for Psychical Research, the ASPR. So, uh, we talk about Henry James being very influential in the creation of the classic ghost story. It's the haunted house, Bly House, that's in the turn of the screw. And in fact, speaking of Bly House, there is a second adaptation of a turn of the screw coming, which is a sequel to The Haunting of Hill House from last year. If you guys saw that on Netflix, it's yes, really it was good. so good. I, I yeah. did. I watched it all. Yeah, it was a lot better than, and I, I've read the original Shirley Jackson book. I'm a fan of the original Robert Wise movie from 1962, um, The Haunting. And I thought, I was like, okay. Remember they made like a haunting redo in 1999 with, I mean, she's my girlfriend, but I hated the movie, Catherine Zeta Jones. Yeah. And um, who else was in it? Uh, uh, Owen, Luke, no, Owen Wilson. No, Luke Wilson. Which one? The one with the. Owen. Uh, Owen Wilson with the blonde hair and the, the nose. The blonde one. Yeah. And uh, Liam Neeson was in any, it was horrible that the haunting movie, they took all of the, sca- like all of the psychological scares out and made like the bad guy come to life, like out of a painting directed by the man from the man who brought you speed. Here comes the new horror classic, the haunting. Oh man. It's terrible. But the haunting of Hill house was terrific. so good. So scary. Yeah. So scary. Yeah. Scary, and it really adapts the story into something that um, is a lot of fun as well as chilling. And so the sequel to that is going to be an adaptation of Turn of the Screw cool. called The Haunting of Bly House. 
So that's coming soon. So that's the second adaptation. So Henry James has been dead since 1916, 103 years, and he's more popular than ever. Yeah. Uh, considering wow. that he's got a new movie coming out with Finn Wolfhard. <laughs> <laughs> Teen heartthrob. <laughs> right. And and the, do you think high school girls are looking at Finn Wolfhard like Wendy, you might have looked at Corey Feldman or Allison. <laughs> you might have you might have looked at that um Leaf Garrett guy. Leaf Garrett. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> uh, I think so. Or maybe one of the Hardy. A- Allison, did you like the Hardy Boys? Oh my oh, gosh! Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe. I, I, I could have. I could have like read a few issues of Tiger Beat. But yeah, I haven't looked right. at it lately. Oh god. Okay. That's so I'm just, great. I'm just thinking about girls today being interested in film Wolfhard, and you're just like. What the kid from Stranger Things? Yeah, yeah. Because think um, about it. Like Kirk Cameron was was in Tiger Beat magazine. Like that's what oh, I'm saying. Yeah. Like the nerdy kind of right. And Finn Wolfhard at least has curl, a cool hair. Like Kirk Cameron had to perm that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh, you know, speaking of, so who's you know one of the people who is in the new Turn of the Screw movie, The Turning, uh, with Finn Wolfhard is uh, Jolie Richardson, and this is interesting. She is the fourth member of her family to be involved in a Turn of the Screw adaptation. So she comes from the Redgrave famous acting family. And so um, her mother was Vanessa Redgrave, who you guys probably remember her from the – what was Vanessa Redgrave? She was in like the Weight Watchers ad. (laughs) You you know, she was in a bunch of Weight Watchers ads. um, But her aunt Lynn Redgrave – was in the 1974 version of The Turn of the Screw. She played the governess. Her uncle, Corin Redgrave, played the professor in the 2009 version of The Turn of the Screw. And her grandfather, Michael Redgrave, was the uncle in the movie The Innocence in 1961, mm. which was a adaptation of it. So, I mean, this is the, the fourth adaptation to star a one of the Redgrave acting family. And so that's just an interesting thing, too, that, you know, you think of over time... We think, oh, man, just everything gets remade or rebooted. It, it, this is nothing new. Yeah, um, and it, became, pe- it, it happened so many times. It became a, a family tradition. <laughs> right. That they're like, when Natasha Richardson, who uh, she passed away, she was Liam Neeson's wife, uh, and she passed away in that skiing accident a few years ago. Um, she never appeared in a Turn of the Screw adaptation. So obviously the family was very disappointed in her. <laughs> yes. But just an interesting thing. But let's get in a little bit of Henry James now. So Henry James Sr., obviously, is a dude that's super into religion. And so much so that he has a two-year kind of breakdown because um, he can't figure out, you know, he feels an evil presence in the room or whatever of the the fetid manifestation of my fears. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of... Of Pan, you know, the idea of of this kind of presence that comes into your life that creates panic. Yeah, I mean, an, an existential crisis kind of thing. So, I mean, Pan right. or who, whoever snuck in, whoever was crouching next to him, next to that fire, he had an existential crisis. It's funny, though, because Henry James Sr., he is hanging out with people like Emerson and Thoreau, and he's hanging out with the transcendentalists, too. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that Henry James actually, um, he had lived for a while in Cambridge, Massachusetts, because it was, he believed it was the center of American thought. Hmm. And William James was living in Cambridge, too, because he had studied at Harvard. And so he was doing some of his experiments into spiritualism at Harvard. Now, Henry James Sr. thought spiritualism was a bunch of bunk. So he wasn't into... Uh, in fact, he wrote articles, spiritualism, old and new, spiritualism, modern diabolism in the Atlantic Monthly in the 1870s. When So p- people after the Civil War are obviously into spiritualism because they're trying to contact their dead sons and, yeah. you know, so it's reckoning with all the loss around them. Yeah. And Henry James Sr. then, his Swedenborgism... Uh, for some reason, does not mesh. So, so his belief in life after death does not mesh with spiritualism as like mediums and stuff. And so then he writes a couple of articles in the, the Atlantic Monthly, obviously still comes out, but it comes out every week, I believe, in the, as, as the Atlantic. 
and the Atlantic also is where uh, Emerson had written some of his initial essays on transcendentalism and Thoreau. And he writes these articles in the 1870s saying that spiritualism is crap, modern diabolism. So uh, diabolism is evil and, because it comes from our word diablo. Uh, Diablo. The devil. So he believes that the spiritualism that we think of with people hanging around the table and stuff. Yeah. Of course, when you look at his experience that changed his life, you know, he was feeling that he was experiencing an evil presence of the, the spirit in the room crouching in the corner in the shadows. And and perhaps this led him to see spiritualism through this negative lens. Mm, interesting. Sure. Right. Because when he had a when he had an experience with an external spirit, it made him crap his <laughs> pants and changed his life for two years. Right. It's kinda like Zach Baggins seeing as everything as demons. Right. Did that demon tell you to come poo in there? <laughs> Did you say my name? Right. Yes, Zach, the demon said your name. I've got, yeah, don't say my name because the demon will be provoked. Well, obviously, he has stayed overnight in a house that ranks eight on the demon scale. It's called the demon house. And he's ready to go mano mano a demono with with any comment. There you go. Mano Diablo. (laughs) Mano Diablo. (laughs) Okay. So... But we can make fun. I mean, obviously, we can make fun of Zach Baggins all day long. But the thing is, so three people in the James family were famously fascinated with communication with the dead. And Henry, in fact, um, he called them the others. And uh, not like, I mean, like the others in Lost or whatever, or the others in the uh, the novelization of the Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones. In the books, they're called The Others, not just The White Walkers. In fact, the reason that in the show Game of Thrones, they call them The White Walkers instead of The Others is because when they were working on the script, Lost was still on the air, and they didn't want uh, people to think of The White Walkers as just like The Others from Lost, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. But speaking of that term, The Others, uh, there is a very... Henry James-ish, like, gothic horror movie from 2001 called The Others uh, with Nicole Kidman. Yeah, and I felt, I, I don't know, I mean, there's, I knew what was coming, so it wasn't, like, a big surprise to me. But, you know, I, I think I would recommend it. There's they're, they're playing with all these themes, like, light and dark, and and there's a lot of interesting, like, inversions going on, so... I, I would recommend it. I, I think I might even like to watch it again. Wow. With Henry James and, you know, the turn of the in view. Right. Because the other, the reason it's, the reason the movie The Others, I would say, is very inspired by the turn of the screw is because um, there's a woman who's taking care of two young children uh, who have a rare disease that they are sensitive to light. And so odd things start happening around the children inside the house. Yeah. And it's so it's very similar, this whole idea of, you know, you're in this English country house and there's kids that you have to protect versus the spirits who are coming in. And who is seeing the spirits is the, uh, you know, the woman who's taking care of the kids. And so she might think she's crazy. Right. Like, the unreliable in, narrator, you know, you're and, and she's. And in that movie, she's wondering about her own sanity, uh, right? And and which is interesting when you look at it through the lens of Victorian society and how they saw women as, you know, potentially hysterical at any moment. Well, I think it's interesting right. too. Just like, the the governess, you know, she's responsible for these children. She is the adult in the situation. She's supposed to be in charge and control and calm. And you know, I used to babysit as a teenager. And I remember being in a house and, you know, you hear a weird sound and it's like, okay, don't let the kids see that you're scared, (laughs) you know. And so she's not even sure if what she's seeing is real or like you said, you know, if she's imagining it or but she has to be sort of investigating it calmly. So I think that's kind of an interesting uh, position for the main character to be the unreliable narrator to be in. Right. You know, because she's under such pressure to keep them safe and she feels like, you know, this super supernatural threat is getting more and more intense. Right. 
And, you know, she has no one to turn yeah. to because, you know, their uncle is just absolutely. He said, don't bother me. Like, he said, like, just take care of that and leave me, me alone. I don't yeah, he's have like, to deal with these kids. And so she has no <laughs> one to turn to. Poor woman. There's a couple of things here, a couple of connections I just wanted to make. Number one, I was just talking about Lost. Um, one of the characters in there, um, Mrs. Mills in the movie The Others is played by Irish actress uh, Fianula Flanagan, who also plays a character in, in, on Lost as she is one of the others in Lost um, that goes back to the island. And then also the Game of Thrones connection. Um, so uh, Mrs. St- not Mrs. Stark, Caitlin Stark. There was no Mrs. in the Game of Thrones, but Caitlin Stark, Ned's wife, is also one of the people who's taking care of the kids. Uh, like one of the servants who's hired by Nicole Kidman's character or whatever in the movie. So there is a, it's funny that all of these, maybe there's only so many British actors to go around. <laughs> I think so. You know, it's like, well, we've got 20. So this one's on loan. This one's on loan. But you can have him. He's been in Doctor Who um, kind of thing. Um, but like you're saying, though, also the way that James portrays the governess she seems to have like a obsessive love for the uncle. You know, she wants him to see how well she's doing taking care of the kids in the beginning. Like the uncle seems to be some kind of fantasy lover in her mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one like this, this, that she's not worthy of the love, but she wants to show him that she's worthy of it. Yeah. And, I think that's an interesting thing. I mean, Henry James is criticized because he only dealt with the people who were more well-to-do, you know? I mean, you, you write what you know, and Henry James grew up in rarefied... I mean, when you are having intellectual conversations with Ralph Waldo Emerson as a teenager, because he's friends with your dad, it's different than if your dad worked in the coal mine. And so what is... Uh, uh, who's the guy that wrote The Jungle? Oh, um... Well, Upton Sinclair. Uh, Upton Sinclair. Yeah, and he was Upton. he was really into parapsychology as well. He wrote another book called Mental Radio, all about psychic stuff. That's cool. Oh, that's right. But Upton Sinclair talked about Henry James, and he's like, well, uh, he, you know, like one day in the Chicago stockyards would teach him, right, kind of thing. So he was, <laughs> so Henry James was criticized for being somebody who who wrote books about the higher class, who wrote novels about the uh, about the upper class, it, at a time when novels. I mean, this was part of Dickens. When people are thinking of a Victorian novel, Dickens' work, where he was trying to at least portray some of the Victorian underclass uh, and the plebes in the you know Victorian society. Henry James was not dealing with what was called novels were supposed to represent reality at the time. They were supposed to be grittier and showing people's true life experiences, not a governess who's got to take care of some rich brats and thinks that she might see some ghosts in the old house. I I know, but, you know, she is the victim of the story. And, you know, she's of a lower class because she's a, a servant. And you know the hey, tell that to Upton Sinclair, not me. The, the, well, the other, the other goat, the goat starts servants as well. You know, so they're all being victimized by high society. There's there's plenty of victimization and exploitation to go around. With. <laughs> Great. I, well, I hope so. But you know, some interesting things in the novel is that this idea that the ghosts are there to corrupt the children, and she's trying to save the children from corruption. That's almost, I mean, that's the theme of The Catcher in the Rye. That's uh, Holden Caulfield's whole thing is he sees kids as innocent and this world coming down in that. I mean, the Holden Caulfield is just out of being a kid himself. Um, but he sees the world around him coming in and corrupting these beautiful creatures. And that's, I mean, in the turn of the screw, her whole, whole idea is that she's trying to keep them from being corrupted by the previous servants who were getting it on with each other <laughs> and uh, like the rough life yes. that, um, what was the guy's name? The uh, the guy, the, so one of the ghosts um, was walking home from the bar and like, gets drunk and slips on the ice, and that's how he dies. Oh, right. And the thing is, because the kid, the boy, uh, Miles, he wants to hang out with this guy that's the valet of his uncle because 
his uncle's never around, and he's just got women around him. Yeah, so he needs a male he's, figure. He needs some kind of male figure, and he ends up hanging out with this drunkard or whatever. Right, and Quint. then he lie he lies about it. Quint, that's right. That's Quint. a good name. Quint is a good name. It just makes me think of the uh, ship captain or whatever from Jaws, though. The whole time. <laughs> When he tells that story about the USS Indianapolis or whatever, and like the sharks coming by and picking off the men of the sunken ship during World War II, that's who I picture Quint to be. I also, so that's how I, like, instead of this like fine English valet or whatever, I think of the old sailor. Nice. <laughs> and actually Robert Shaw, the character that, uh, the actor that played Quint, he was wasted when he acted out that scene where he tells the story. It's like the most effective scene in Jaws besides the part where, he, you know, Jaws is eating people. And he was drunk because he was terrified of that scene because that was his big moment. And even as like a 60 year old actor, he was scared. And so, uh, you know. Everybody thought like, oh, God, what's going to happen? And then he comes on, he delivers it perfectly, and then like passes out right after. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, right, the idea of her trying to save the innocents and that these ghosts are going to corrupt the innocents. Yeah, because Quint and Miss, Miss Jessel are getting it on 24-7. Right, because that's what's happening in the, in the old house. And it also is interesting, too, because in these uh, 19th century books, a lot of them, the narrator was someone involved in the story. So you don't have a lot of omniscient narrators in 19th century novels. You have a lot of epistolary novels, which means they're written in the form of letters. Oh, like uh, Dracula. Right. So they're written in the form of letters instead of a narrator that kind of, you know, an all-seeing narrator or from a certain perspective. So this novel is done, the idea is that it's the, um, it's the governess herself who is writing this at a time after she had experienced it. And so Mrs. Gross, the housekeeper, um, she basically is like the simple woman who becomes the vehicle for exposition in the story because the governess keeps on telling Mrs. Gross, when she's like, oh, um, this is what I saw, you know, and I saw the I saw the ghosts and the kids didn't see the ghosts, but that just means they're lying to me because the ghosts are perverting them, kind of thing. Mrs. Gross is the one who she's telling all the stories to, and she becomes the vehicle by which uh, the governess can kind of kind of ramps up her own craziness. Right, she's basically giving confirmation of the stuff that the governess is experiencing. So she'll she'll say like, "Oh yeah, there used to be a." servant here that looked like that or whatever she's kind of feeding the fire there she's an enabler <laughs> she is an enabler <laughs> totally what 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 i think is funny though too is that when the governess sees the ghost of peter quint she sees him in the clothes of the uncle so she sees him in garb that is so she doesn't necessarily see like a, a ghost she sees a man dressed up in the clothes of the uncle so when you're going to, like, is it a real ghost story or is it all in her head? Um, she's imagining things that she's already seen. Mm -hmm. So I think this is where Henry James gets, this is where it becomes clever in the writing of the story, is that he gives it the possible explanation that it could be all in the governess's head the whole time. And while that is kind of a cliche now, like now when I see something and you're like, oh, it's all just a dream. Yeah. You're like... <laughs> This is crap. You know, that it's all just a dream. You're like, yeah, I saw that one coming, you know, two hours ago. At the time, that's a new thing. And what makes the story clever is that he puts into each part this questionable aspect where, yes, these could be ghosts or it could be all in her head. And it's left up to the, it's, it's the lady or the tiger or whatever. It's left up to us to kind of make the decision for ourselves whether it's a real ghost story or whether it's schizophrenia. And that's something that William James, his brother, in 1902, so just four years after uh, Henry James releases The Turn of the Screw, William James, his brother, releases The Varieties of Religious Experience, A Study of Human Nature. And he links singular religious experiences to psychological disorders in the brain. He now this is very this is very nineteenth century talk right here. He says these experiences are delusional insanity. <laughs> nice. And um, so he starts making the connection between mental illness and 
religious experiences or belief in the paranormal. And in fact, in 1994, um, some Australian researchers find in one of their studies a correlation between instances of schizophrenia and a belief in the paranormal, at least for males. So it is not the hysterical females where this happens. It's the hysterical boys. <laughs> nice. ah. But William James and his brother, they're affecting each other because they're having these conversations. And this is the cool thing, I think, too, is that when you think about people's discussions, like you think about now, when people have a discussion with someone who doesn't necessarily believe the same thing they do or has an oppositional point of view, it's always some kind of contest or always some kind of battle. It's got to be like on TV, and then you're like, they're just reaching for sound bites. Or it has to be in some kind of proper debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of people just getting together and having a conversation on what they think might be the truth without having any kind of anger or bitterness at each other. And Henry James and his brother are able to do that. And interestingly enough, we talk about the relationship between religious and the paranormal. Before Henry James writes The Turn of the Screw, a couple in like 1895 or whatever, Henry James is depressed because he had a play that he was trying to put on and the play failed miserably. So um, the wife of the Archbishop of Canterbury is involved in the uh, English, or the, I'm sorry, the Society for Psychical Research. So the, the, the English version of the Society for Psychical Research. And so she uh, has the Archbishop have a talk with Henry James to kind of cheer him up. And then he tells him this story of this governess who was taking care of the kids and was haunted by apparitions of the former, like the former governess and the former governess's lover. And says like, oh, the ghosts were trying to, uh, the, the ghosts were trying to corrupt the children and everything. And that kind of boils in Henry's mind for a couple of years until he starts writing The Turn of the Screw. And oh, so, so you're telling us it was potentially based on a true story? Correct. Wow. Well, that's a huge revelation. So, I mean, that comes from a journal called Psychical Research and the Turn of the Screw uh, from American Literature in January of 1949. But that's that's kind of weird that the Archbishop of Canterbury chose a ghost story to be the centerpiece for his pep talk. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you think you got it bad. Well, at least you aren't <laughs> fighting two ghosts and potentially your own sanity. Yes. And, the, and the, you know, with two souls of the innocence it, um, in the balance. If you think one soul is bad, imagine the turn of the screw with two souls. Yes. He's, he's <laughs> like, Henry, suck it up, dude. <laughs> Stop, right. Stop being such a wimp. Man up. Get back out there and write your most famous work. And that's what he did. Um, so interesting enough though, so Henry James, he says that psychical research has little to offer him in the way of imaginative material. He says the prevalence of clinical analytical approaches to quote unquote, the others had caused a quote, marked and sad drop in the general supply and still more in the general quality of the ghostly tale. He thought that paranormal research had made ghost stories more boring. Kind of like paranormal TV has made ghost hunting more boring oh as we gosh, walk yes. as we walk around with K2 meters talking talking to lights on a meter right or just just um being endlessly fascinated with creeks yeah <laughs> you know it you know as as you know we're going back to the bumps in the night and that's it. That's our understanding. Did you hear no, it's that? All bumps. Or also just like like you're saying with the meters, you know, taking it as absolute like, oh, the meter just moved. There's something in here, you know. Right. <laughs> just, right. Oh, oh, I just pooped. <laughs> so it's the debasing of, you know, something that is really much more nuanced and uh, has the potential for deeper understanding. Well, it, it, to me, it almost seems like the... Um, the, I don't know, the desacredization would be, I mean, would that be sacrilege? Because that, that's more of a blasphemy type of thing. But I'm just thinking of the word of, so instead of taking these religious experiences and having them in some kind of sacred aspect or these uh, once-in-a-lifetime 
ghost experiences that people have had. It now becomes, um, well, a matter of when somebody farts and then you think you hear your name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's what Henry James felt. I mean, he said the more psychical the case. So, that, you know, he felt that, quote unquote, new type indeed, the mere modern psychical case washed clean of all queerness as by exposure to a flowing laboratory tap and equipped with credentials vouching for this respectively certified the less it seemed the nature to rouse the dear old sacred terror ah i see so so you know the 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 spiritual power of the experience is experiences is um kind of uh washed out by the harsh clinical uh approach to it correct and so um you know that's when he's writing about you know, real ghost research is he finds the more research his brother does into it, the less exciting that ghost stories become. And, you know, interestingly enough, Henry James then writes an essay in 1910 called Is There Life After Death? And one of the reasons he writes this essay is because his brother William dies in 1910. And so William, who's fascinated with spiritualism, he uh, promises to his friends that after he dies, he's going to come back and leave a message. This is what everybody says, right? That's what Andy Kaufman said. That's what, um, remember they had a seance with Andy Kaufman on TV? I seem to recall. And of course, yeah. you know, that that's like Houdini as well and all the famous seances to contact him. Yeah. Right. And um, they had George Zunza, um, which was Andy Kaufman's best friend. And I believe he's played by Danny DeVito in Man on the Moon, where Jim Carrey plays Andy Kaufman. Anyway, George is on this live seance with Andy Kaufman, and he's like, the medium said things that only Andy would know. The problem is, like everything with Andy Kaufman, you're like, is George just playing you here? To, you know, because that's a way better totally. headline than this is all bullcrap. Right. I mean, talk about the unreliable narrator as comedian. That's Andy <laughs> Kaufman right there. Anybody involved with Latka from Taxi, is <laughs> chances of them lying to you are high. Um, anyway, that just made me think of the Andy Kaufman thing, because that's the most recent example I can think of. Someone that said they would talk to you from the dead, and then they had a seance yeah. on television um, after the movie Man in the Moon came out to kind of capitalize on the popularity of Andy Kaufman's work um, that was reinvigorated by that particular film. So... Going back to William James said the same thing. William James is basically the Andy Kaufman of the 19th century. <laughs> nice. No. No. He wrestled women. He had such a... He was on Saturday Night Live. He was on... Right. Saturday Night Live was... It had to be live in 1897. <laughs> in the theater. <laughs> so a few weeks after he's died, William James' friends are like writing letters to each other saying, you know, did anything... Have you gotten a message? I mean... Just after he, he passed away, a medium in Washington State comes out and says, yes, William James has been in touch with me. He le she says that he's left a letter in a place that only a few friends know and would corroborate her story. Huh. And his friends are like, nope. And so then she starts doing some writing saying that they're from him. And uh, she's like, nope. So the first one is a, is a bust. The second one. Uh, his friend, James H. Highslop. Whew, I thought Huberty was a rough name, <laughs> but Highslop is right up there. So James H. Highslop uh, says that a 15-year-old boy contacted him, the son of a minister, and the boy fell into trances and William James took control of his body. This is three years after James died. According to Highslop, the young psychic delivered a message from James warning him of an evil poltergeist who left razor blades and matches where they could be found and used to do harm. James also cautioned Highslop, I'm sorry, that name is crazy, about a shade, quote unquote shade, not like a shade on your window, but like a shade of a ghost, which in the middle of the night would hurl inkstands and stones at the heads of spiritualists. So this communication happens for a year, and then High Slop just the, the kid stops talking to him, or the kid stops speaking through James, or James stops speaking through the kid um, over after a year. So High Slop doesn't say that one is particularly true. He finally says that in 1918, in the middle of World War I, he was sitting with a medium who said that he was dictating 
a Mark Twain book from the grave. So that the medium said they were channeling Mark Twain and writing a new book. Oh yeah, there's there's a you know a lot there's a history of of mediums you know trying to do that. That's neat. Right, it's brilliant. It's a great way to be like, well, you should probably buy this book because even though it's not technically by the person, I channeled their spirit. <laughs> That's right. It's Mark Twain is still writing from beyond the grave. <laughs> right. Uh, I guess the rumors of his death were nice. greatly exaggerated. <laughs> That's right. So Highslop is having a meeting with this spirit. And then one of Highslop's friends, Hugo Munsterberg, comes through instead of Mark Twain. And this guy predicts that Germany, or that Potsdam, Germany, uh, will fall soon to the Allied forces in the First World War. Then, a few days later, Highslop is having the automatic writing session with the medium who's still writing about Mark Twain. And then all of a sudden... William James Redding appears, confirming the fall of Potsdam, Germany, coming a few days later. And so he said that William James also predicted the end of the First World War. So that's not too crazy because, like, the Germans were losing by that point in 1918. And um, the Potsdam was where the Kaiser was ruling from, not Berlin, but Potsdam. So, like, that was just like saying, like, oh, the Germans are going to lose soon. I guess Mark Twain told me. Yeah, so not very reputable. But the, the reason I want to talk about that is because William and Henry also made a deal that they would talk to each other after William had died. And Henry James writes this essay in 1910 called Is There Life After Death? And it's one of the few times he ever talks about his actual beliefs about religion and the afterlife, not just fiction and what's good for a ghost story. And it's funny because at the same time, Henry James was also depressed again, as these sensitive writer types tend to be, because he had just come through a 23-volume edition of his own work that he had collected together to be like a monument to his career. And he's trying to sell it like he's like, he's like, this is called, he called it the New York edition because he was back and forth between New York and and uh, England. In fact, he becomes an English uh, English citizen in 1915 at a, as a protest for the United States not entering the First World War. So he was so offended that the United States did not join the side of England in the First World War that he switched his citizenship. But he writes this thing, is there life after death? And it's just kind of him wondering about legacy because he tries to create this legacy for himself and then it fails in the writing. And so he's like, well, if, if these material things are not going to be my legacy, you know, will our personalities survive after death? And, and the answer ba- is a resounding <laughs> no. <laughs> he says he thinks, basically he thinks it's unlikely. And one of the big reasons he thinks it's unlikely is because he never got a message from his brother. Hmm. So he says that um, it is art alone that retains and holds to life the consciousness of man long after the finders and the makers ever gone. The true immortality is the immortal picture or statue, the immortal phrase, whether of music or of words. And that ends up being his faith, not his faith that his soul will survive after death, even though it's what his brother dedicated a lot of his life to and his father uh, dedicated his life to that kind of philosophical uh, talk and search for the afterlife. So in the end, Henry James is like, I, I think he's almost a victim of his own ego hmm. in that he feels like when he's not having the kind of success that he wants, you know, I guess, you know, when the world's, when you're up, when the world smiles, you know, if they say like when you're smiling, the world smiles along with you, but when you're sad, you're sad alone. Yeah. Or, you know, when you cry, you cry alone kind of thing. Um, that's, you know, Aww. that's Henry James there. And so what he, I mean, he dies in 1916. And he's, you know, he says that, no, my brother has never reached me in the, uh, in the years uh, since he has passed. And also, you know, some people have now come to the turn of the screw instead of it just being a ghost story, which in the beginning, people just thought of it as a ghost story. And then for a while, people were thinking of it, oh, maybe it's a story about mental illness. And then it becomes like in post, the post-Freudian world, 
which is a big deal because if his brother's William James, and William James is a star of the pre-Freudian world, we're talking about Sigmund Freud here, the uh, Austrian psychologist or psychiatrist who said that everything had to do with your penis or your vagina. He basically was the five-year-old of uh, psychotherapy. Uh, he, you know, the post-Freudian analysis of the turn of the screw is it's really about repressed sexuality. And because Henry James was a repressed homosexual, uh, he was trying to um, express that through the turn of the screw. And, you know, that's why everybody is so shocked by the sexuality of Quint and Miss Jessel. You know, and that's why people are talking about the corrupting powers uh, on the children and the idea that this innocence must be protected at all cost. Yeah, well, it's interesting that there's a Freudian reading of it. And well, there's a, every, every time that genitals are even involved in any place, there's a Freudian reading of it. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, to me, it's... Just like this analysis of the turn of the screw is so interesting, you know, knowing so much about William James and, you know, how he he's really thought to be the father of American psychology and certainly he founded um, the American Psychological Association. Uh, so and both Henry and William suffered with depression uh, so it's just interesting how that story, like all these influences of psychology and mental illness and interest in a potential afterlife life and ghosts, you know, they all come together uh, in this, this story, The Turn of the Screw, which is really, you know, one of the most inscrutable stories out there because it just leaves you wondering just as, you know, our search for an afterlife keeps us wondering you know like when you watch things like hellier you know (laughs) at where you read john keel you get that sense of the paranormal too that uh there's there's a trickster uh element to it you know or maybe it's it's yourself it's uh, you know you're your own unreliable narrator but yeah it's interesting how all those Influences come together in one story. It is. And I love the fact that he never answered to any of the critics that were debating, oh, did he mean the ghosts were actually ghosts? Or did he mean that there was psychological illness with the governess? He, as the author, he just never, he left it ambiguous. He left it up for discussion. So, like, that's beautiful because, you know, art should be open for interpretation. And the fact that he just, he didn't, you know, maybe he didn't even know himself, but... I love that it's it's left that way for us to discuss. Yeah, and I mean, art imitates life in that, you know, even today with with these strange experiences that people have, you know, we're constantly asking ourselves, well, you know, did that person experience something extraordinary because of, you know, a problem with their mental state or, you know, Maybe they were on like psychedelics or something like that. And, you know, maybe these altered states of consciousness produced it. Where on the other side, it's like, well, maybe both things are happening at once. Maybe the altered state is just letting you see something that's actually always been there. But uh, in, you know, normal consciousness, you wouldn't notice it. Well, you know, I think that uh, Henry James, the, the whole ambiguity of it, is a beautiful thing because you can ruin a movie by having too much will he or won't he, is this true, is this not true, with the director or the, the person in charge um, who screws with it too much. And I'm thinking of Blade Runner as a great example. Is Harrison's Ford character an android, a replicant, or is he not? Is he a human? Like the, the initial version of Blade Runner implies he's a human. Then 10 years later, uh, Ridley Scott's back like, oh, I'd like to make him a robot. And then he changes a couple of things. He goes, this is my original version. And all of a sudden, um, you're like, okay. And then he makes another version and another version. And you ask him, is he supposed to be a robot? Now he's like, yes, he's <laughs> yeah. totally a robot. Where 20 years ago, he's like, it's up, to, is up to you. Is he a robot or is he not a robot? And the thing is, I still think the original version, even with the silly uh, narration by Harrison Ford is the best version because making you feel at that end that is he a human or is he a robot? Like, what is he? Uh, having those 
um, questions makes the whole thing more interesting because it brings up more principles and debate than whether just saying straight out, dude's a robot, boy. Right. And it's like it puts you in that liminal state, that in-between state where, you know, the paranormal, you know, that's where it lives. And, you know, you're constantly questioning but you know that's that's a great place to be as far as learning you know rather than just putting a stamp on it and saying oh we're all done with that now i know what that is no you're you're letting yourself wonder about possibilities and there's there's a lot of potential there and it reminds me of uh, our friend um dr jack hunter and his his uh concept of ontological flooding which is why can't we let all these things exist simultaneously in our mind together? And, you know, these different views uh, can coexist. And so perhaps that, you know, the turn of the screw is a story that, you know, makes you think about possibilities coexisting. Well, what you know, I think something um, interesting as well. So, Wendy, you brought this up. In the uh, in the notes before we started uh, before we started recording, is that the idea of ghost sickness and that what the governess is suffering from is I mean she's obsessed with these ghosts that she's seeing she's obsessed with the old governess she's obsessed with Peter Quint and um, his unwholesome love for the old governess she's obsessed with her own feelings that are. Obviously, you know, they're obviously a problem because she has feelings for the uncle, her employer, which is completely improper because he's supposed to be a gentleman and she's just a babysitter. Yeah, she's the um, servant. And so... Sound of music, so just saying. This idea that being obsessed with the... Uh, <laughs> being obsessed with the dead, um, you know, consumed by the deceased, preoccupied with the deceased, um, gives you... This thing called ghost sickness, where loss of appetite, suffocation, recurring nightmares, and the terror all the time, almost like Henry James Sr. felt for the two years he was in a spiritual crisis. And so that it's a traditional um, belief among some indigenous peoples, the Navajo, the Plains cultures, as well as some Polynesians. Yes, and also um, the Menominee of Wisconsin. I had a, a Menominee. A friend who who told me about ghost sickness many years ago, and you know we think of that as sleep paralysis today, but um, still in Menominee culture, you know this idea of nocturnal visitation uh, of these spirits that um, that really will oppress you physically as not a bad thing necessarily, but just their contact with you is oppressive. You know, they, they just want to reach out to you, but it causes this sickness among humans. Yeah, it ends up draining the energy. Right. I mean, it's not intentional, uh, but it's just it's just because those boundaries are crossing. You know, like you were saying, Wendy, like the sound of music, the governess yeah. has to be the wife in that one. <laughs> Sorry, spoiler people. But... But that is who wouldn't want a piece of Julie Andrews? Yeah, that, especially that 1964. Is just like a hopeful story about the breaking down of boundaries, which it seems the turn of the screw is about reinforcing boundaries between the spirit world and um, the living, the world of the living, and also um, you know it's like a prison in, in in a sense, and then the the social roles as well between the servants and, you know, the um, the man of the manor. Um, you know, these are all these divisions that keep us from each other. Um, and so when they cross in the turn of the screw, tragedy results, not, not, you know, like a happy ending as in The Sound of Music. That's true, yeah. Going back to the ghost sickness too, a lot of the stuff that I read about the psychological aspect of that is that sometimes it's sort of a manifestation of someone dealing with their own grief from having lost something or someone. So whatever that, I just thought that related nicely to this because the governess in the story, you know, she's potentially got some of her own demons that she's struggling with. Yeah. And, and ghost sickness too is one of those 
phenomena that it, it's like you're asking yourself, is this just psychological? Like this person is dealing with their grief and in, you know, not so healthy ways? Or is it like a two-way situation where the person left living is grieving, but also the person on the other side, the, the dead are grieving as well. And, you know, causing the inability of both spirits to stay stuck and not move on. Well, that makes me think of the Nietzsche quote, I mean, the he who fights with monsters should be careful lest he thereby become a monster. And if thou gaze long into an abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee. You know, the ghost sickness makes me think of the more obsessed you are with these things and the more you obsessed you are with your grief and preoccupied, um, the less living you actually do. And that feels like the, uh, that definitely feels like the governess in the turn of the screw. Yeah, for sure. Now, the governess in The Turn of the Screw is in love with the uncle of the children she's taking care of, her employer. That's stated right in the beginning. In fact, the guy says that she couldn't tell her story without it coming out that she was in love with him. But it was a forbidden love because she was his servant. She felt that she wasn't worthy of his love, and she kept on hoping that he would see her with the children, how good she was, and see that she was worthy. The overwhelming desire to be worthy of your heart's desire is the inspiration behind this next song. This is Sunspot, mine without a holiday. Tell me nothing of your life I painted you as an angel These lines, these curves Don't do you justice If it's all the same to you I'll draw them just as well I can't believe you're not on paper I can't believe you are Made for me to touch I will accept that you are mine without a holiday But not that I deserve as much Tell me nothing of yourself I sculpted you as a goddess this lifeless cane don't hold a candle to your visage It's all the same to you I'll shape it in your image I can't believe that you're not fiction I can't believe that you are made for me to hold I will accept that you are mine without a holiday But not that I should be so bold Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. You know who is worthy of our love, Wendy? I do know who's worthy of our love, Mike. Yes. And that is the <laughs> Patreon community for Sunspot and See You on the Other Side. You guys are helping us put together new songs. 
uh, new podcasts, and of course, things like our video for Spend the Night that was just released on YouTube, Facebook. You can find it, sunspotuniverse.com. Uh, you can do a download of it just in case you're not on our email list right now. Uh, and if you're not on our email list, what the hell are you doing with your life? Oh, no. Please do join the email list, though. Really? Yes. And if you guys like the kind of stuff that we do every single week, please check out our Patreon community. We want to thank our Patreons because for the small contributions that they make every single month, it really makes Wendy and my life easier. Yes, and it makes us... We love you. It makes us so happy. So we have a special shout-out to Dr. Ned. He's at the level where he gets a shout-out in every single episode as an executive producer of See You on the Other Side. Thank you, Dr. Ned, thank for you, Ned. all of your support. Yes, thank you. And I just want to emphasize that it really does help us. And it's wonderful to know that we have this team of people behind us that, you know, they're on board. They're in it. <laughs> yes. And they're providing us with feedback and comments and, and their own questions about the topics that we discuss and the music that we create and things like that. So thank you all. And also thank you, kind listener, for tuning in not really tuning in because it's not a radio but for having us in your podcast player and taking the time to listen we love to be in your ear holes and we'll see you on the other side i had to rob a piggly wiggly oh oh i just pooped <laughs>